In a two-year review of all suspected human trafficking incidents across the country, 94% of sex trafficking victims were female, 40% were Black, and 24% were Latinx. In King County, Washington alone, 52% of all child sex trafficking victims are Black, and 84% of youth victims are female, though Black girls only comprise 1.1% of the general population. Several factors contribute to these statistics. In an interview with the Urban Institute, traffickers freely admitted they targeted black women believing that if caught trafficking black women, that would land them less jail time than trafficking white women. Socioeconomic status and prior experience of abuse are also strong contributing factors that increase the likelihood of being trafficked, and black girls are more likely than their racial counterparts to experience both poverty and abuse. As more and more studies are published revealing this racial disparity, we learn we must discover more about how race can impact the vulnerabilities leading to trafficking and the path to exiting trafficking if we hope to stop this crime from happening. Hello everyone, my name is Helen Hofer and I'm the Freedom Drivers Project Director for Truckers Against Trafficking or TAT. And you're listening to our podcast, Driving Freedom. Today, my co-host is TAT's Deputy Director, Kyla Lanier. Kyla, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. Helen, I am so glad to be here, and I'm very excited to have Dr. Nisi Hamilton with us today. She's a survivor leader, she's an activist, and we were introduced by one of my former students. I used to teach high school, and I have this young man who is, he was always an activist. I was always sort of in awe of him. He's brilliant, ambitious. His name's Nathan Cady, and he sent a message on Facebook introducing Nisi and I, and I'm so glad he did. Today, Nisi is going to be speaking with us about how racism and the systems it has created leads to vulnerabilities with African Americans, Latinx, Indigenous, and Asian women and girls that make them targets of traffickers. Nisi, we are so glad you are here today, and I was wondering if you could start us off by sharing your story as a survivor of human trafficking. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Tat, for inviting me here to be with you guys. I feel like family already. And so this has been just super phenomenal already. So I am Dr. Nisi Hamilton and I survived human trafficking. So not just survived it as an adult, but as a child, my trafficking started through my childhood. I mean, the youngest age of, of 15 years old and actually for it was sex trafficking. It was labor trafficking. So my first battle with human trafficking was through labor. And I was offered an opportunity to work at a strip club. A young lady says, look, hey, um, I work in a strip club and I'm going to give you my ID. You can go work at another strip club. And at this time I had a kid and I had, you know, like things going on in my life where I wasn't in school. I was homeless. I was living behind a Walmart. And so fast forwarding my story, I'm here with this girlfriend who's going to relieve my stress of being homeless by offering me a job at a strip club. I I take this opportunity because I'm thinking, oh my God, here it is. I get to get off the street. And that was not the case. Immediately, she was being pimped as well. And so she identified me as someone who would easily transition into uh, a trafficking position because no one would be looking for me and it would not be hard for her pimp to do as he will with me. And so the pimp is keeping the baby who I'm thinking is her boyfriend. And I'm making about $75 a night. I'm just waitressing. I I haven't gotten to the stripper mold and none of that is encouraging. You know, I I came in with the idea that I'm going to be a waitress and that's it. 
Well, one night I get home and I'm getting ready to get my baby and her trafficker, who I don't know is a trafficker yet, says to me, you can't have your baby unless you give me $200 a day. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Is this serious? I can't get my kid unless I give you $200 a day. And I'm thinking, let me go and tell one of the girls what's happening. Maybe they can help me. One of the young ladies suggested that since I had to come up with such a large amount of money, that it would be easier for me to transition from being a waitress to a stripper. And that's exactly what happened to me. Do you think that was like the trajectory or the plan from the start? You know, I kind of don't know anymore. When you're in that life and you're there, you're not thinking to make this a lifetime career or this is a lifetime opportunity. I think that per your disparity, because every girl's disparity is different. For me, my disparity was my kid. I was already homeless. I had already been victimized. I had just transitioned out of foster care into homelessness. And I didn't have any family support. And at this point, this was my only support system. So I think that you know, in my mind that making that situation as safe as possible, as convenient as possible was the best option for me because there, there wasn't a truckers against traffic. There wasn't a Houston 20 or what we have now survivors voice of victory. There wasn't that. So I was left to manage conflict on an adult level as a child. And that's what hurt me the most. And that's what we get that whole lineage of adultification within the African-American community with black girls. Can you talk more about that and about the adultification with Black girls specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So with Black girls, we have faced so much scrutiny about our attitude, especially in this climate. Before this climate, it was always like, you know, Black girls have attitude. A lot of times, Black girls don't just have attitude. Those attitudes associated with hardship. And so when you are a child and you're a black girl and you experience way more hardship than you do someone in your life helping to helping you to alleviate or navigate through your pain, then your sensors just from trauma are going to constantly be agitated because you've been in a constant state of having to reduce your own conflict to your level of understanding so that you can cope with just being in society. And it's painstaking. It's a painstaking idea to think that any 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 year old black girl has to manage her own conflict, deal with it on her own while listening to people constantly bombard her with their ideas of how they think she should be acting when she really wants to say, hey, I've been sexually assaulted. Hey, somebody's molesting me. Hey, somebody's doing X, Y, Z to me. And I want to be able to tell you these things without you removing me from my family, which this is the only thing that I know, or without you taking my friends from me, because this is the only life that I know, or without you causing more harm or creating a more damaging situation in my life that I'm already experiencing by making me hate people that I'm supposed to love instead of just teaching me about what it is that's not supposed to be happening to me, because I know this isn't supposed to be happening to me. We're so busy focusing on what didn't happen the two years before we got help, the one year before we got it, the six months before we get the five years before we got help. Uh, we have such an attitude about just that moment in life, that time in life, that from trauma, 
we're not allowed to move forward because you have to tell us, hey, I'm, I'm here with you. I know what happened six months ago, a year ago, five years ago. We're going to deal with this right now. You have to tell us that so that we can move forward. Otherwise, we're going to keep talking about it as if it happened yesterday because we never got to talk about it when yesterday was five years ago and it happened then, if this is kind of making sense to you. Can you talk about then, how does that tie into, is there a disproportionate number of women and girls of color today represented as victims of human trafficking? Oh, there's definitely a disproportionate number. Human trafficking has become a divided responsibility, and it should not be. It should be an undivided responsibility, Uh, just because institutionalized rape. When you start breaking down the amount of girls that are Black and Latina versus white, Asian, or other recognized, you start thinking, oh my God, how did we miss this group of girls? And our literature, our movies, our advertisements, they speak for themselves. So I wanted to jump in on that, Nisi, because, and and I'm not going to say anybody's specific story, um, but I've heard a number of different stories from survivors of trafficking that have said things, and, and I'm summing up all of these in this one sentiment because it pretty much captures it, where the white woman was arrested, but the black woman next to her wasn't. And when the white woman complained, why are you arresting me and not her? We're doing the same things. The answer was given, you, I could maybe save, she's going to be doing this because it's just what she's going to end up doing. So it is that notion that, again, it goes back historically, but it has continued this idea and this concept. That's just their lot in life. And we don't have to intervene for it because they're not going to take our help anyway, this sort of like idea that's out there. But in your words, to, to say that more worthy or supposed worthy, I'm I'm doing quote marks, I know you guys can't see that on the podcast, but then we will bring our powers to bear, bring our services to bear. But if you don't qualify as that in our minds, uh, based on our own racial biases, right, then, ah, well, we don't really have to try too hard. Exactly. And that is totally the reason why I ran for office, so that they can start seeing us as people who deserve to compete in public markets that are professional, not private markets that require you to be slaves. And this is the reason why in the human trafficking space, over 90% of our girls return back to the life because we don't have jobs. So how do you think we feel not being able to enter into the workforce market? or be in a place where we can market ourselves, where we can show our value. And a lot of girls are having difficulties doing that so that they can move forward. So when you don't get companies who operate with corporate social responsibility, then there's a lack and the girls aren't being paid. So they don't know how to transition over into society. And I want to talk about that a little bit more just because I don't think people always understand the barriers to exiting and getting out of the life. So you're in this horrible situation. The average person in our society would say, well, just tell somebody that you need help and they'll help you or just call the cops and they'll help you or just leave. And besides the psychological chains and the fear or if there's a relationship and those trauma bonds and all of that, beyond that, I think some of the obstacles really are like, well, what will I do? Because if I have been trafficked from the time I was 16, how am I going to feed my kid? I don't have a support system to go back to. And then what do I put on my resume? Because you weren't going to school at that time. We have a job experience gap. We have all of these different types of things 
if you want to talk to some of those barriers, I mean, I would love to hear your perspective, you know, the obstacles any survivor would face, but then the racial issue as well. You don't think who's expecting me to make it out and who's not expecting me to make it out. Time you try to transition into normalcy, being a young girl with just two kids, and you want to translate that into you just having a regular job and moving forward. Who's going to hire me for my clerical experience? Who, who's going to hire me if I've dropped out of school? Who's going to see me as somebody who could be the CEO of anybody's company? You're so far down on the, on the totem pole. There's no way to have the mindset to think, hey, I could compete professionally in the public market with normal people without me having to use my body parts to compete in that market. Because at that point, that's all you know. It's the institution of your everyday life. There's nothing else to equate to anything else because you haven't even been introduced to a public market. And so you get stuck right there. I mean, this is why mentorship, counseling for the victim, but also mentorship of businesses. People always ask, well, what can I do? Well, what can I do? If you can show them or talk to them about different careers, because if you haven't been exposed, like that's what you were saying, I haven't even been introduced to any of these other possibilities for me. We need to assess and individualize that sort of transition period in those services, because that's how they're going to really make an impact on somebody's life. And, you know, speaking of that, Nisi, I mean, I want to get into this question of like, you know, we're obviously talking to a predominantly transportation industry, trucking industry audience. What can companies, not the individual driver that companies do to combat human trafficking? Um, so some of the things that I've brought up in policy, um, you guys don't know that I like to write policy. I've written and been a part of four different bills and um, three of them have passed. So I'm very excited about that. But one of the things that I would definitely like to introduce to um, the corporations that do want to get involved to do something is to make sure that we open up our human resources or our handbook and make labor trafficking and human trafficking applicable in a sense to where you can be criminalized or punished for it if you are participating in it or if you are actively involved in it in any type of way. And we do have, right? We have that language to share with companies, which is awesome. I'm so glad that you hit on that. You said that. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, it just it just struck a, a chord. And I and I love that, Helen, because you're into it. You're there. You you care about corporate social responsibility, which that's everything right now, right? Social responsibility is everything for every company. You're not gonna make money if you're not socially conscious. And so we gotta practice this. And I hear companies do training on human trafficking and they talk about domestic violence, they talk about sexual assaults and they talk about all of this stuff and group it under hostile work environment and let's just group it up. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is if I was looking at Exxon's employee handbook right now, I would want there to be literature that says we are against human trafficking include domestic violence, to include sexual assaults um, done by employees, changing your employee handbooks to include me, to include my survivor sisters. If you are a traveling salesman, if you're a traveling oil and gas person, if, if you don't do it in your hometown, but you get, we send you over to LA to do a job and you're out there participating or purchasing sex and you're doing X, Y, and Z, you will still be punished for this because that's what a lot of traveling executives are doing. 
And it gives the chance to say that as a company. Like it's a great opportunity to convey that clearly. Hey, this is what we mean when we say no sexual harassment. What we mean is also you're not using company time, our company resources, laptops, phone, air miles, hotels. You can't do any of that. And then we have a plan in place if someone does purchase commercial sex to take action. You have a clear process that then says our company clearly stands against this. This is a great like just from a risk management perspective, when you're thinking about that, it's handling that. And it's a great opportunity to write, communicate all that your company cares about to your employees, right? When they're getting onboarded. And you bring up this point of when we're talking about what can companies do, hire survivors, like be a part of this training pool. A number of companies are doing work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like think about how are you making it possible for someone who didn't have the opportunity to finish school? who potentially didn't have the opportunity to search for XYZ job because they just need to get money on the table for their kids. How are you paying attention to those barriers? I mean, it just feels like it's such a great fit to be able to offer those jobs and pay attention to that and create a workplace that supports and encourages that. I wasn't sure how to word this question, but when we talk about all of these barriers of like likelihood to have a high school degree or a bachelor's degree, how is racism setting people up to be more vulnerable to trafficking? Racism plays a big, big part in this. And that is because of the system that Black girls were already introduced to from European men bringing over West African concubinage into the Americas and bringing into the slave trade market. How often are we going to see, truly going to see African-American people at the end of the finish line when we see more African-American girls coming out? We don't have as many cheerleaders. Uh, we don't have as many supporters, but we don't have half the amount of uh, resources that Caucasian women have when coming out of trafficking or just surviving it. And so I believe that this climate is, is a call to action for all data authorities, information authorities, informational systems to ask more Black people, what is it that we need and what is it that we want? until we people come together to support human trafficking in a way that girls can survive it and not be punished for being a part of the caste system. And I, I wanted to add something to what you were saying, because I mean, Annika and I train law enforcement around the country as well. And so often, both in the trafficking recruitment stage and then in the penalty phase, everybody wants to talk about, you know, the perfect victim that was plucked from their bedroom and trafficked. Can that happen? Absolutely. Yes, that can happen. But more times than not, what traffickers are looking for is the non-sympathetic victim. They're looking for the person that nobody's looking for. That was Annika's case. That was your case. They're looking for the person that has already run away from home. They're a chronic runaway. They're truant from school. They get in trouble. They might be involved with the court system, BIPOC uh, individuals, and that's Black, Indigenous, people of color, somebody that's not going to be sympathetic so that nobody's going to recognize them as victims. They're going to see them as, oh, well, that's just you know, I mean, they're problem kids, this is what they do, right? And so they get blamed for their own exploitation. And then in that penalty phase, if they make it to court, again, I'm not necessarily seeing my child represented in this court case. Therefore, I'm not going to be as sympathetic. And then when I take in their history, which might not be so pretty and so perfect, right, then I can sort of assign some blame back to them in the penalty phase is lower. It is 
in the best interest of the trafficker to seek out those who are not sympathetic and who are viewed as lesser or more marginalized to begin with. Absolutely. And this is why it's important to, in this climate, talk more about, like we're doing now, what's happening in that world of human trafficking, what it looks like. If this was the news right now, the news would only talk about that trafficker, who it is, their name, what it is that they did, right? You never hear about the survivor. You never hear about what we can do to support her, how we can support them, how, what can we do? What can we do as a community? You never hear that. The only thing that's getting pushed out are the traffickers. So when that's the perpetuation, and if that's the, the only informational system that everybody has to hold on to, then what it does is it will program you to think less and less and less about the survivor because you think more and more and more about what the trafficker has done or is doing. Thank you, Nisi, for taking the time to share your expertise and insights with us. As you said, the way we see and talk about human trafficking, the way the media talks about it, impacts the way we understand it. So we have to do our own due diligence educating ourselves. And that's why you, our listeners, are here. And I'm so thankful for that. Thank you for the work you're putting in to better understand this crime and how to address it. One of the things I love about TAT is that we partner with amazing professional drivers and companies, giving them the free tools to combat trafficking. Drivers are making calls to report it, and it is our hope that we will see more companies taking on the social responsibility and including this work as a part of that. Whether you do it as a part of adopting an anti-trafficking and persons policy with a demand reduction focus, or by adding programs to hire and train survivors of trafficking, these disparities exist. But with time and commitment through education and action, you are driving freedom.